preaching in your word tonight, the Lord, you'd help us to get delivered from a spirit that drives us to think that we have to perform to earn your love. A pharisaical, religious legalism, Lord, that causes us to think that if we miss in one little thing of keeping your word, that somehow we're going to miss heaven or lose your love. And we thank you tonight, Lord, that you love us unconditionally because of Jesus. You accept us the way we are, and you give us the strength to become more like you. And we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to be speaking tonight on perfectionism and performance. And this is one of the most common emotional disturbances in counseling offices ever encountered by counselors. Uh, most people don't know this, but this is so common, and yet it's very seldom spoken about. Now, a person driven by a spirit of perfectionism sometimes will either go one of two directions. They'll become so introverted and insecure and feeling like they can never achieve, or they'll get so pious and hypocritical and uh, legalistic that nobody can live with them. Some perfectionists are so pious and holier than thou in their attitudes that they find fault with anyone who doesn't measure up to their narrow standards of what's right. You ever met a person like that? No matter what you do, you can't be as good and holy as they are. But the sad fact is that most perfectionists can't stand themselves because they can never live up to or perform to an acceptable standard that they've set up as what they feel they have to be. So let's describe perfectionism very quickly tonight. Perfectionism is a constant and all-pervading feeling of never quite measuring up, never quite being or doing enough to please. To please whom? To please anyone and everyone, yourself, others, and God. You can't please anyone. Naturally, a lot of self-belittling and self-contempt goes along with it, together with a super sensitivity to opinion, to the approval and the disapproval of others, and all of this is accompanied by a cloud of guilt. The perfectionist almost has a feel, they have to feel guilty. If for nothing else, they have to feel guilty that they don't feel guilty. You ever met a person that no matter how good things are going, I know something's going to go wrong, it's going to happen any time. I mean, I just know that God couldn't have, God couldn't make everything go this good. I mean, God's got something in store for me, and I know the devil's going to get me any minute, and they're always looking for the next wrong thing to happen. And they feel guilty because things are going right. Or you walk into a room, they walk into a room, and they see two people over in the far corner talking. They say, I knew they're talking about me again. They're a perfectionist. They know that they can never measure up to the standard and everybody's going to be talking about them. Also, perfectionism can produce a distorted picture of God with feelings of doubt and rebellion and anger against God because you don't believe you can ever please Him, so you get mad at God because He sets standards that you can never live up to. Churches today and all through the ages have been full of Christians who have become legalistic Pharisees and emotional neurotics because they're driven by perfectionism. John Fletcher 
who was a contemporary of John Wesley, described certain of his parishioners. Remember, this was hundred years ago. He said, some bind heavy burdens on themselves of their own making, and when they cannot bear them, they're tormented in their consciences with imaginary guilt. In a word, do we not see hundreds who, when they have reason to think well of their state, instead think there is no hope for them whatsoever? They really should be contented that God is working on them. They're getting better and better every day, but no matter how much they achieve. Now, I, I've gotten into this plight at times in my life where no matter what was going on around me, no matter how many were being saved, no matter how large the church was growing, I had this condemnation like I could be doing more. My roommate came and exhorted me one night and said, Gary, you work till 2 o'clock every night. You work on your messages as though you're going to die if you don't get them finished uh, and, and have them perfect for the next morning. And he said, Gary, what's wrong with you? I said, I just want to do my best for God. And he said, does God want to kill you in order to get your best? You go without sleep, you're looking like a zombie, and you're driven by this thing of you've got to be the best, you've got to be the best. Why don't you just rest and be what God's made you? Well, I know what it is to try to be a perfectionist. I'm the... All right, I do have a few problems. I noticed this piece of thread sitting here on the stage. And I will tell you if the plant is not perfectly centered. I'm the only person on the way into the service. The ushers have to watch me pick up four pieces of paper on the ground as I come into the service. I want things neat and orderly. That's the way my life is. I'm just an orderly person. But worse than that is the person who's driven by a religious perfectionism. Because that person isn't trying to just please the standards of cleanliness. They're trying to please a God that they think has set standards that they could never live up to. They're trying to live up to the law instead of living under grace. By the way, would you throw this away, Nate? <laughs> I was counseling. I was counseling on the phones several years ago when we received a call from a desperate family. This family belonged to a, a legalistic denominational church that had to told its followers that they were the only true church of Jesus Christ. They had their followers believing, and personally I believe when a church begins to teach this type of doctrine that it becomes a cult. Because when you separate yourself from the whole body of Christ and say we're the only true believers, that really separates you into a cultic situation. But they believed that Billy Graham and TBN and every ministry that was outside of their church denomination was of the devil, but yet they were watching TBN that night. And what had happened is the young girls that called that night, and we got them on the phone, told me that their brother had gone berserk. Would I do something? Well, he felt like a hopeless sinner, unable to please God or lead a victorious Christian life. And Jesus described these Pharisee churches that put people into bondage and condemnation. He mentioned them in Matthew 23, verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders. 
He was talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which were legalistic and had to stick to the law and every jot and tittle. And Jesus was saying, basically, they placed heavy religious rules, regulations, and lists of sins on people. They tell them what they can and can't do. This is a church that told them that if the women wear makeup, they're going to hell. If you drink a cup of coffee in the morning, that's it. God's not going to accept you. If you go to a movie, doesn't matter what kind of a movie, that's of the devil and only the heathen go to movies. Andy Anderson was in Sweden as a little boy, and his church was one of those that said the movies are going to hell. And he went to a Walt Disney movie, and they kicked him out of the church for going to a Walt Disney movie, for going to where the heathen were. Well, that's the kind of churches that put these undue burdens on people's shoulders. You know, even John Wesley, years and years ago, as an itinerant pastor, recorded it this way as he saw this in many of his parishioners and people that followed him. He says that sometimes this excellent quality, which is tenderness of conscience, is carried to an extreme. We find some who fear where no fear is, who are continually condemning themselves without cause, imagining something to be sinful where Scripture nowhere condemns it, supposing other things to be their duty where Scripture nowhere enjoins it. There's some groups, cultic groups, that tell their followers, you have to win 20 souls for Christ today, and you can't come in and eat until you do. Because God has told us that's how many you're supposed to win today. What are the symptoms of this perfectionism? Now remember, this is the greatest emotional disturbance in God's people today. If you go to counseling offices, this is, this is behind almost every disturbance that people face. Number one is that you never measure up. Now, I won't get into it this week, but most of the time, Perfectionism starts with your parents. If you have demanding parents that you can never please, or parents that continually find fault with what you're doing, this usually begins that perfectionism spirit in you because you're always striving to please them and never able to. And no matter what you do, even if you get straight A's, you know, if you get four B's and one, uh, four A's and one B, they won't mention the four A's. It's why did you get that B? If you get straight A's, it'll be why did you spill milk on your shirt today? Don't you know that I spent a lot of money on that shirt? They will always find something negative. They will never tell you the positive. And we get our concept of God from the way our parents brought us up and, tr and treated us. And if they treat us hostilely and, and with uh, contempt and we can never please them, then we grow up thinking we can never please God. So we grow up never feeling we can measure up. Its chief characteristic is a constant overall feeling of never doing well enough or being good enough. This feeling permeates all of our lives, but especially affects our spiritual lives. Psychologist Karen Horney, uh, in her classic says, she phrases it and describes it perfectly. She calls it the tyranny of the ought. The tyranny of the oughts. I ought to. Here's a typical statement, for instance. I ought to do better. 
I ought to have done better. You know, you get anyone who, uh, didn't you know they were interviewing movie stars a few weeks ago on some news program, and every one of them, they would say, well, you got an Oscar for that scene. Do you think it could have been better? Oh, yeah, I could have done that a lot better. If I had another chance, I could really act that better. I could get more feeling into it. I ought to have done better. I ought to be able to do better. All the way from preparing a meal to praying or witnessing. I didn't do it quite well enough. The three favorite phrases of the perfectionist are these. I could have. I should have. Or I would have. If you're living in this emotional state, the official state song is, if only, you're always standing on tiptoe, always reaching, stretching, trying, but never quite making it. You're never quite able to do what you feel you should be doing. You know, I, I, uh, I believe Finney had this. Because I read in one of Charles Finney's books, he said, no matter how much I accomplish for God, no matter how many people I bring to the Lord, no matter how many states I visit, and how many revivals start, I always want to do more. Now that can be positive, and I don't know that it was a driving thing in his life, but when it drives you, and it's a feeling of condemnation and shortcoming, then it is a sick, evil thing in your life, because it will keep you from walking in the peace that passes understanding. The second symptom of perfectionism is low self-esteem. I think the connection between perfectionism and low, low self-esteem is obvious. If you are never quite good enough, you feel a continuous sense of self-depreciation. If you are never quite satisfied with yourself and your achievements, then the next step is quite natural. If you're not satisfied with you, then God couldn't be pleased with you either. He's always saying, come on now, you can do better than that. And if you're a perfectionist and never pleased with yourself anyway, you reply, of course, that's right, God. I could have done better. I never do do what you want me to do. So back to the spiritual salt mind you go with increased efforts to please yourself and an increasingly demanding God who is never quite satisfied. But you always fall short. You're inadequate. You never arrive. But you must never stop trying. How sad that is. There are some in this building right now that are here and you barely made it because you feel like God's not going to accept me, but I might as well go to church because I feel a little better when I sing songs. God doesn't have demands on your life except to obey Him. Do you know that obedience is better than your sacrifices? It's not how long you pray. It's not how many people you witness to every day. It's not how long you read your Bible. It's whether you obeyed God. Did he even tell you to do those things? And you see, we, we put heap these undue burdens on each other and on God's people. With that kind of a perverted concept of God's demands, many Christians end up trying to perform for others and for God to receive their approval and self-esteem. I've got to perform for God. You know, there was somebody that... Uh, accused an evangelist recently, said he never took a vacation because he 
had this spirit of perfectionism and performance and felt that he could never take a vacation because he had to live up to some standard that he thought God had for him and he was never going to be uh, released to even take a vacation because he could never do enough for God. And as he talked to the evangelist, he found out that his father had been that kind of a demanding person and he could never really live up to the expectations of his father. So, of course, he was an evangelist driven with this desire to always be going, going, going. Of course, he enjoyed bringing souls into the kingdom. But, you know, you can burn out in five to ten years with that kind of activity. You've got to learn to come aside and rest for a while. Jesus told his disciples to. He knew how to do it. That evangelist is now going to take a rest, praise God. He's learning to rest in God's grace. John and Paula Sanford, in their book, The Transformation of the Inner Man, used a young lady by the name of Peggy as an example of this. They said, Peggy came to us because her husband had left and she couldn't understand why. She had done everything for her husband. Listening to her... John says, I couldn't see what was the real reason for the separation. Then it happened that Peggy was the guest host for a house meeting at which I spoke. The moment I entered, Peggy busied herself, blustering here and there, over-serving everybody, trying to get everybody's attention. Can I do this for you? Can I do that? On her face and in her manner, even in her walk, she was saying, I'm performing well for you. Tell me that I am. Don't you feel guilty if you don't? You ever seen people like that? The Marthas of this world? Jesus, don't you see that Mary's sitting at your feet? They're not doing anything, and I'm covered about by much doing, and I'm doing a lot for you. And Jesus, come on. You should give me a, a, a pat on the back because I'm really working hard for the kingdom. Jesus said, well, big deal. I didn't tell you to go and be busy with the housework. I didn't tell you to fix roast lamb and 16 vegetables. He says, Mary has chosen the better part. She's being obedient. She knows I'm only here for a short time, and she's at my feet worshiping me. She's chosen the better part. Jesus, i got to do all these things. Don't you see how busy I am in the kingdom? Big deal. Paul said, or uh, John Sanford says, I knew why her husband left. The poor man could never rest in his own home. <laughs> Every service she did laid a demand on him to respond, to appreciate, to notice. A man gets tired having to prove over and over that he loves and appreciates his wife. She could never simply believe that she was loved and rest beside him. She had to serve, and he had to affirm. Proverbs 21.19 in the Revised Standard Version says, It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and fretful woman. i got to take the kids to school. i got to clean the dog. i got to make the house. I mean, i got to... <laughs> She's out building houses. <laughs> John Sanford says, I tried to tell her, and she wouldn't hear me. She, too, was a born-again, Holy Spirit-filled, believing, church-going woman. She knew salvation, but her heart could not receive it and rest. 
The Bible says an evil man seeks only rebellion and a cruel messenger will be sent against him. It was not long in coming. A cruel messenger was sent against her because she was always trying to do her own thing, trying to build, do something that would get approval from people. It was a lot of self-effort. You understand? Self-effort. Her husband did return home, but he lost his job. Now he lay on the couch and he demanded service. She had to go out and find a job. Not only would he not help straighten up the house or do dishes, he would not even drive her to work or let her take the car. She had to pedal her bicycle, work all day, pump the bicycle home, clean up the house and his day's dishes, prepare supper, do dishes, wash clothes, and get ready to do it all over again the next day. It's amazing, too, when you've got a perfectionist for a spouse, they drive you crazy to the point where you say, okay, you want to do it all? Do it all. <laughs> so whenever we continue in our own stubborn way, the kind, seeming unkindly, uh, the unkindness of the Lord is to pile on more and more until we reach the end and become disgusted enough to quit. And here's what happened to little Peggy. One morning, in, you know, the day came in which still a half mile from work, Peggy turned to churn against a 40-mile gale. She was on her little bicycle, and a 40-mile gale was coming against her, and she was trying to get to work on time. That did it. There on the bike, pumping for all she was worth, <laughs> she blew up at God, screaming at the top of her lungs, here I am trying to go to work. I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to love that no good husband you gave me. I'm doing all the work at home and he won't help me. And you have to send a storm against me. But that outburst opened the doors and broke her control. And out of Peggy poured all of her pent up feelings. She cursed. She raved. She ranted. She wound up shouting obscenities at God. And what happened? No lightning bolts hurled out of heaven to strike her down. No cars came along to crush and punish. She expected that. If I don't live up to the standard, God's going to take up to me. Instead, in, in Peggy, there came an overwhelming peace anointing and blessing and love poured out of heaven all over her. Right there in the middle of the road, she stopped and cried like a baby. For the first time in her life, she knew someone would love her, even if she didn't do it all right. Her unbelieving heart had finally been evangelized, and she realized, God loved me even when I shouted and swore at him. A few months later, Peggy came to see me, not for counseling, but to say thanks. Always before, she had sat on the edge of her chair, knees together, hands folded in her lap, overly prim and proper. Now she lounged comfortably in the deep chair, laughed and joked, and admitted easily and honestly what she actually felt. You know, I got a kick out of it. Uh, when I was back in few weeks ago, doing that crusade with Donnie, they invited me to go to a pastor's luncheon, and I, w I had 
I was dressed in Levi's. I I looked pretty much like this. And uh, I walked in, and all these guys with their three-piece suits, I mean, everybody, it was Rubens. And, I mean, it, it just they had the best suits, ties. I sat down, and the, they, they put me in the front table. I sort of slouched down, and I decided, I'm just, I'm tired. I'm just going to be cool here. But I don't have to live up to somebody's image anymore. I don't have to play the game. I want to be me. Well, that's what Peggy found out. She could just be cool. Incidentally, he had finding out that it was okay to goof had not caused her to lose her moral nature. Peggy happens to be one of the most gloriously beautiful blondes a man could wish for. Now being moral had become easier, originating from a base of love for God, not from compulsion. She had finally learned the true meaning of grace, which is undeserved, unmerited favor. You know what? You try to be good. You try to be moral. You try not to lie. You try to never do things that are sinful, and yet, because you're driven, trying to keep every spotless law, you keep blowing it. But the minute you relax in God's grace, there is a supernatural ability God gives you to overcome the world. He that is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. That's our trust, our rest in God. I don't overcome the world because every morning I've got a list of I can't do this. Let me see. I can't step on the cat. Okay. I don't go by laws. I go by the spirit of grace. Our self-esteem has to come from being accepted in the beloved, not from our performance and our achievements. Our acceptance is of grace. It's not of work. Our acceptance is of grace, not of works, lest any of us should boast. Galatians 3, verses 1 through 3 in the New International Version says this. Now Paul comes to the Galatians, and he sees that the Galatians have fallen back into a pattern of trying to be worthy of God's love. They were saved by grace. They had learned that it was not of works, but of grace. By faith, lest any man should boast. And he comes to them and he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Did God give you the gift of His Spirit? Did He save you? Did, did any of these things that you have come because you observed the law and you were good? He said, or did they come by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish that after beginning with the Spirit, you are now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Paul is saying this. Did God save you? Did He give you His Spirit? Did He place gifts within you 
or heal you because of your works, because of your performance, because of your deserving? Or did He do it because of His unmerited love and grace towards you? God did it because it pleased Him. Everything God's done for you, you didn't deserve. You could never deserve. Your works are as filthy rags before God. If you try to deserve anything from God, if I try to deserve heaven by, by being the best preacher or, or evangelizing the most cities, it's going to be filthy rags in front of God. But if I go out and preach to a city that God sent me to in obedience, if that's the only city I go to the whole year, if I obeyed God, it's going to be well-pleasing in His sight, much more than me going 50 places He never told me to go. I, I'll tell you what. I, I had to break out of a, a thing years ago. I used to watch Catherine Coleman, and I was positive that she was too weird for God to use. There had to be a catch. There had to be something she was doing that was causing those, those miracles to happen. So I went and got me a nice white suit kind of baggy. I wanted kind of flowing, you know. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But I tried to dress in a way that I thought a preacher should look. I thought if you dressed a certain way, that God would really move. And hey, that's not so bad. Look at all the churches that say if you wear makeup, God won't accept you. They tell you if your skirt is is not below the uh, ankle here, that uh, they put these rules. And I really thought, I, I mean, I thought there were certain ways that you prayed. I started slapping people a little bit. I thought that really got the spirit going. I, I got into that thing, yay, you know. Every time I prayed for somebody, it was, yay, yay, yay. I I thought really that was what made it work, so I started doing it. I, then I saw, I figured it out. I figured out that if I prayed for an hour before the service, there would be a real move of God. If I prayed two hours, all glory would break loose. So man, I got really mad when I couldn't get a whole hour in. Now, today was a good example. Today, mm, I, I, I don't want to tell you who was with me because they saw me lose it at a car lot. I had to take my car in to be serviced, and my secretary said she would call me when the car was ready to be picked up, and I was working furiously on my little message at home, you know, and she calls me at 1 o'clock. She says, it's going to be done by 2 you can go over there. I'm sending a young man over to pick you up. He'll take you to the car lot. You can pick up the car, bring it straight home, and go right back to your message. Fine. Fine. That will give me plenty of time to finish my message, to pray up a storm, and be ready for the service. Well, the young man gets there too, and I said, just to be safe, let me work for another half an hour on my message, and then we'll go. So we didn't go till 2.30 or so. We get over to the car lot, and they can't find the paperwork on the car. Okay, look for your paperwork. Half an hour later, we can't find the paperwork. 
Nobody knew the paperwork was left in the car. They were going everywhere looking for the paperwork. Then they finally find the paperwork. They bring it up, and I pay for the car, and they said, uh, we haven't washed the car yet. I said, forget the washing of the car. Well, we already started to wash the car. I was trying to be a patient saint, but I was being exhorted by the young man that drove me to the car lot. When they finally brought the car, I said, thank you for the keys. Goodbye. I drove home and broke two speed limits. Anyway, I got home. I only had two hours left before the service, and I hadn't even finished the message. I called Pam, and I said, Pam, I'm going to be late to the service tonight. And then it occurred to me, you don't get to pray at all. Do you know what it makes me feel like when I can't pray before a service? Yet, I came in here, and the minute I walked through that door, God's glory hit me, and I was under the anointing, and a lot of people got baptized in the Holy Spirit. I didn't have any time to pray or sing or work anything up. You see, it's by grace. It's not by your praying for hours. It's by God's unmerited favor. God does it as it pleases Him. He sometimes does that. He does the opposite of what you think just to prove to you it's not your works at all. Man, if I prayed for two hours today and we had the same thing, I'd be walking out here, whoa, was I spiritual tonight. Yeah. I get a kick out of our little pastor clones. But <laughs> they think if it works for me, it's got to work for them. I'd rather see a pastor that did it totally different. You understand that God does it different through everybody. I mean... Over there at at the uh, church, they have soaking prayer. I think that's wonderful. They'll pray for them for 10 minutes. You know, soak them with prayer. Hey, if it works, do it. Sometimes I like to soak them with prayer. I mean, you've got to do what God tells you to do. And God does it so diverse and different. There are diversities of gifts and differences of administrations. And so you can't say because it works one way by you by the ears. And she starts, you know. <laughs> Another symptom, and let me try to finish tonight, is legalism. You find somebody who's, who's a perfectionist, and you're going to find legalism. Now, this is either going to be a, a legalism that's trying to perform to the perfect standard of the law, and it really puts them down, it makes the person feel unworthy and condemned and and low self-esteem, or it's a legalism that says, well, I can build myself up by finding fault with everybody else. But the legalism that, that it's a Pharisee spirit that, you know, why can't you be like me? There, there are some leaders in our nation right now that are lifting up a standard to judge all the other leaders. That's a Pharisee spirit that says, if they don't live at the standard that I live, they're not worthy to be a leader. God judges the leaders. The perfectionist with the fragile conscience, his low self-esteem, and his almost built-in sense of automatic guilt is very sensitive to what other people think about him. Since he can't accept himself and is quite unsure of God's approval, he desperately needs the approval of other people. 
Thus, he is easy prey to the opinions and evaluations of other Christians, and every sermon gets to him. He introspects. Everything I say, ah, yes, maybe that's what's wrong with me. Maybe if I give this up, maybe if I add that to my life, maybe if I stop doing this or I start doing that, I will experience peace, joy, and power. Maybe then God will accept me and I will please Him and I will be what Pastor says I should be. No. Every message, it seems like it's pointed right at you. And yet, that's a perfectionism spirit. You know when it's for you. Some of you, I wish they'd hit you more often. Your idea of a good sermon is the one that goes over your head and hits somebody else, you know. The Bible is God's good news that God's grace accepts you the way you are. With all your faults, where does that make me rest at night? God, I did some big boo-boos today. I still love you. You ever seen a father? He's got his little kid, and the little kid's starting to walk. And he takes a few steps, and he... Right on his nose. The father doesn't him over across the room. He picks him up and he says, try again. He goes and he spills his milk all over the table. The father doesn't take his head and plop it in the milk. You see, God loves you. He says, I know you're a mean little squirt. I know you blow it all the time, but you're my son, and I'm going to keep picking you up. The righteous man falls seven times, and the Lord picks him up again. Oh, I love God because he's so forgiving and graceful towards me. The good news is that the way to God is not the path of perfect performance. No matter how much you try, you can never win God's favor. Why? Because his favor, his being pleased with you is a love gift of His grace through Jesus Christ. Grace is simply our uh, anglicized form of the Greek word charis, which means gracefulness, graciousness, kindness, a favor. But in the New Testament, this word has a special meaning. It means freely given, undeserved, unmerited, unearnable, and unrepayable favor. I can't pay back God back. God's loving acceptance of me has nothing to do with my worthiness. As Dr. Cook reminds us, grace is the face God wears when he meets our imperfection, our sin, our weakness, and our failure. Grace is what God is and what God does when he meets the sinful and undeserving. Grace is a pure gift, free for the taking. Now let me finish with this. When you lose sight of God's grace, you doubt God's love, and you start believing that every sin is going to make you unacceptable to God. One traveling minister I knew of had a powerful ministry, traveled around the world till he got involved with a girl. He got in the flesh with a young lady. Satan came after him. And you know, sometimes sin, the first 
reaction we have is to get out of the presence of God, to sort of forsake fellowshipping with God. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, they hid themselves from God. That's the first reaction when you sin, is to hide from God. Sin should drive you to God. I'm learning that when I sin, I've got to run right to Daddy in the morning and talk to him and, and confess him. There's times that I'm on my face in the morning saying, Father, please forgive me. I'm sorry. I love you. And I know I receive it right now. I receive your forgiveness. You don't have to just ask for it. You need to receive it. Well, this young man had the devil come after him. He got out of relationship with God. The devil told him that he was unacceptable to minister for God. And what did he do? He fell into works and self-effort, trying to be acceptable to God and the ministry. He fell into going into some long fasting. He'd get on prayer vigils. He'd study his Bible. He'd try to do penance with tears and self-abasement. I mean, he'd go without necessities, he'd go, you know, he'd get out in freezing weather, he'd get himself where there was nobody around, and he felt that he was doing penance, he was going to have to beat this old flesh up because my flesh is so bad, and then maybe God will accept me. But God won't accept you because of anything you do. Your fasting and prayers will not make you acceptable to God. As soon as he got around some other Christians, listen to what happened. The Christians would not condemn him. They loved him. And instead of what he felt he, earned, he he felt he deserved for them to tell him what a rotten guy he was, he was a minister for the Lord, traveling around ministry, and man, he ought to get a, a tongue lashing. Instead, they loved him, and they prayed for him, and he began to see the love of God through those people. He loosened up. He started even having fun. Went out with some of the Christians and started enjoying himself. He even found that sometimes... These Christians were spiritual enough that everywhere they went to have fun, they also ministered to people, waitresses. Wherever they were, they'd find somebody to minister to, and he started using his gifts. He had gifts of the Spirit, and he started ministering too. And suddenly, it dawned on him, God uses me. He's not holding something against me. He knows that I was sorry, and he's accepted me. And that loose that young man, and he is now so well adjusted and getting back into the beautiful flow of the Holy Spirit, he found he could rest in God's grace and God's forgiveness. You know, John Sanford said, I see some people that are so caught up in little sins, so caught up in this little sin, this little sin, this little sin, that they're almost on a terror binge. What did I do now? Matter of fact, in the early days, who was the man that brought salvation uh, by grace? Martin Luther. In the early days, Martin Luther was chastened by his uh, father confessor because he would come with every little sin. And finally, the guy, the confessor, the father confessor told him one day, you go out and do something big if you're going to be confessing all the time. I mean, I don't want to hear all this piddly little stuff. But that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say that sometimes when we blow it and experience God's forgiveness, it's so healthy for us to see how much God's grace does avail. When sin abounds, grace does much more abound. 
don't let the devil get you into, you, into that little uh, every piddly sin I commit. That's it. That's it. In Galatians 6, 1, Paul says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Paul is trying to tell the Galatians, you've been set free. All things are lawful to you. They're not all expedient, and you know by your conscience which not to do. But don't go out and try to earn God's favor by keeping the laws and the religious traditions and keeping regulation and legalistic Pharisees. I mean, what was happening? These Galatians lost sight of God's grace. After a while, it seemed too good to be true, and the Galatians began to listen to other voices in the marketplace. Paul called it another gospel. In Galatians 1.6, he says, I, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now your gospel is good works. Your gospel is ascetism. You know what that is? Uh, Self-depredation, uh, beating yourself. In the early days, Father St. Francis of Assisi, they used to take cords and they would beat themselves on the back and they would wear burlap bags that were very uncomfortable and they would try to win God's favor by self-deprivation and ascetism. Well, maybe those Galatians had listened to the Jerusalem legalists who said they had to keep all the law, including the ceremonial law. Maybe they listened to the Colossian ascetics who majored in giving up things in order to please God. They also majored in observing special days, new moons, and Sabbaths. They insisted on self-abasement and deliberate low self-esteem. See that in Colossians 2.18. I was up on the street with witnessing one night with our witnessing team, and uh, there was a guy with a big beard. I remember his bellowing voice. Why don't you guys keep the law? I said, what law, sir? You are not supposed to shave your face. Why don't you have beards like me? I said, because I've been set free, sir. Man, this guy was under bondage. You had to, I mean, you couldn't shave your hair, uh, your hair, your face. You had to keep all the laws. If you ate a, a piece of lobster, you're going to hell. I mean, they just, they kept the law. They stressed what God, Paul called regulations. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Paul said they had the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement, which was of no value against fleshly indulgence. Colossians 2, 21 and 23. And how accurate that was. And so the Jerusalem legalists and the Colossian aesthetics produced the Galatian diluters and the Galatian reservists. They reverted to a diluted mixture of faith and works, law and grace. And the result was the same then as it is today when we mix law and grace. Immature and sensitive believers can become neurotic perfectionists who are guilt-ridden, tight-haloed, unhappy, and uncomfortable. They are rigid in their outlook, frigid in their lovelessness, conforming to the approval and disapproval of others, Yet, in a strange paradox, they critically judge, blame, and bind those same laws on others. I want you to bow your heads.
Maybe you're one of those that's been finding fault with everybody else because you just can't stand yourself. And you need to be set free tonight. You've been legalistic. You've been caught in a trap. Maybe you really believe that by some kind of uh, one to two hour Bible study every day, you're going to be acceptable to God. God loves me right now as much as he's ever going to love me even if I don't read the Bible all week. But because I love God, I want to seek Him and read His Word. You see, service out of love is totally different than service out of obligation. I'm not even going to call you up to the front tonight, but how many of you tonight would say, Pastor, I have been caught up in some perfectionism and legalism and Pharisaic spirit. And Let me see your hand. See, there's many of us. Say the majority of the people here tonight, I include myself. I bind heavy burdens sometimes on the staff. You know, I, I get to some level of I want the offices so tidy. And I, I go and yell at one of the staff about having his desk so close. I don't yell, but I, I make it, when they see me organizing everything on their desk, they get the, the picture. I was counseling somebody in Nate's office the other day, and I noticed myself straightening all the books on his shelf while I was counseling. You're you and I'm me, and God loves us the same. Father, I just pray that you would deliver us tonight in the name of Jesus from all self-effort, from every legalistic attempt on our part to keep your laws. Let us rest in you, Lord, and know that the Spirit in us will keep the law. That, Lord, you've given us a conscience and you've given us a will. The Bible says it is God in us who worketh to will and to do his good pleasure. It's you working in us, Father, to cause us to both will and to do your good pleasure. And we can rest in that instead of trying to find ways to do your good pleasure. I thank you, Lord, that we're going to rest in the Holy Spirit and enter into a new kind of faith tonight and, and just rest in that unmerited favor and grace. I thank you, Father. Tonight's a night of liberty in the name of Jesus. I want you all to say this. In the name of Jesus, I'm free from the law of sin and death. I will not try to keep old tradition, legalistic self-effort, fault-finding condemnation on others and myself, but I will rest in the mercy of God. His mercy endures forever. He will ever receive me as a loving father, as the prodigal was received. And I return to you, Father, tonight. And I thank you. You've accepted me. You love me. Nothing I can do can make that any stronger. 
I'm free in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now give God a praise. Praise God.